We'll be starting a new series, and it's called Church Matters. And it kind of has a double meaning in, in the sense that church does matter, right? That's one sense, but also the matters of church, the issues of church. And Paul addresses various issues in the life of the church in 1 Corinthians. And what he generally does is he defines the problem, and then he applies the gospel in how we should view that problem. So problem, gospel solution, right? And so Paul is a gospel man, and, and 1 Corinthians is broken up to various chunks, maybe six chunks. And the first chunk is the first four chapters, and the emphasis is on unity. So this sermon series uh, is Church Matters, but specifically on unity. And so we'll be taking the next uh, several uh, weeks, and this will probably take us a year to get through 1 Corinthians overall. And we're just starting out today. So in some ways, this is going to serve as an introductory sermon to set up the whole groundwork for what 1 Corinthians is all about. So we'll be at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, please open up to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, all the way through 9. We'll extend it out to verse 9, an additional verse. And I'll be reading out of the NASB version. So if you're able to, please rise as we read God's word. This is special that we have God's holy words in our hands right now, whether in, in, this, in, your, in your paper form or electronic form. This is God's holy word, and we rise to honor him. This is God's word. Verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you, are la- so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll read one extra verse. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with this Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Thank you for your truth out of Scripture so that we can look at it and know who we are in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we be sanctified. And to those of us who do not know you as Lord, may we be saved today through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Thank you, everyone, for reading along and standing and and participating in that way. Introduction this week in this sermon is going to be an extended version, longer than normal, and just just to kind of lay the groundwork of what 1 Corinthians is about. But the author, Paul, identifies himself as Paul in the very first word. Paul, he's the author of 1 Corinthians. This is a letter written to a church. And Paul, he is my lowercase hero, lowercase h hero. Jesus is our hero, obviously. Jesus is the one we look to. Jesus is the one we worship. Jesus is the one we want to be like exactly. But at a human level, God gives us human people to imitate. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
And so Paul is my hero as a, as a pastor, as an evangelist, as a teacher, as a preacher. I've been studying his life very well, he, uh, very deeply over the last three years. And Paul is one of the greatest, of course, next to Christ, men to ever walk the earth. Paul is one of the most influential, of course, next to Christ, to ever influence the planet. Paul is the one who wrote most of the New Testament. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament, 13 letters to various churches and church leaders. And he is the one that took the gospel to the non-Jewish world, the Gentile world. And most of our church family are Gentiles. And so Paul's ministry has reached us today at Evergreen SUV. Many of us owe him thanks for his faithfulness to the Lord. But the Bible says Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul is an apostle. What does that mean? He is, has the office of apostleship. That means that Paul, just like the 11 faithful disciples, not counting Judas, we're talking about Peter, James, and John, and Matthew, and others, he's part of that group who Jesus personally discipled and who Jesus personally commissioned to be apostles, to be sent out ones. Apostle means to be a sent out one, a messenger for him. So Paul is part of that class and category. These apostles no longer exist. They're all in heaven right now. And so Paul was chosen by God, handpicked by God to serve in this very unique way. And we'll learn a little bit more about Paul's life as the sermon goes on. So Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he's in battle. Like the Corinthians have been, some people in the Corinthian church have been trying to take down Paul. They've been attacking Paul's character. They've been attacking Paul's theology. And so Paul is coming in no longer just as a friend, but with apostolic authority. He's coming in and setting the tone saying, listen, you need to listen to this. I am a, a messenger from Christ himself, and this is what I need you to hear from the Lord. And so he's setting the tone. And it says in verse 1, Sosthenes, our brother. Who is Sosthenes? Acts 18, you can look at it later, chronicles how Paul was involved with Corinth and the Corinthian church. Paul spent 18 months, a year and a half, a year and a half, ministering to the Corinthians. God personally told Paul, Jesus personally told Paul, don't be scared. There's many people who have called here to be Christians. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep ministering the word. And he spent 18 months. And for Paul, that's a long time. Paul spent 18 months church planting the church in Corinth. This is a very personal work for him. And during those 18 months, he met a na man named Sosthenes. Who's Sosthenes? Acts 18 says Sosthenes was one of the leaders of the synagogue. And when he became a believer, they dragged him out and beat him. So Sosthenes is a, is a homegrown leader from Corinth. So he is also serving with Paul and acting as Paul's scribe. He's probably penning these words as Paul is speaking these words to send back to the Corinthian church. And so Paul, since he's the church planter of, of the Corinthian church, he gets word back, he gets an update, right? He gets an update, whether written or a 
or a, or a person comes to give them a report how the church at Corinth is. And if it was a letter, I could imagine Paul is like opening it up and just examining, okay, I can't wait to hear how the Corinthian churches, I love these brothers and sisters. I know so-and-so. I remember this guy and this gal came to Christ. I remember they have solid Bible teaching. Let me see how they're doing, right? Paul loved the Corinthian church. Well, he gets a report, and it's not a good report. And to understand this even deeper, we need to understand the Corinthian church. So the recipient of this letter that Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 2, is to the Corinthian church. In verse 2, it says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth. To church of God. So Paul's basically reminding them, this is not Paul's church at Evergreen. This is not Rocky's church. This is not anyone else's church. This is God's church. God owns the church forevermore. And so Paul is saying, this is God's church. And not only that, he's, he's addressing this letter to the entire church congregation. Not just to the elders or to the deacons. This is for everybody. So this letter was meant to be read out loud, similar to a sermon as you're hearing right now. This is not like a private letter. Hey, this is just keep this private between us and this person. No, no, no. This is a very public letter that Paul writes to the entire church. And then the Bible says, which is at Corinth. What is the city of Corinth like? All right. Corinth is located in southern Greece. And it's similar to Southern California as I study what this city, ancient city was like. There's ancient ruins today. It's no longer a thriving city. But in its heyday, it was, it was a spot to be. And geographically, it was located in a very prime location. Okay, what do I mean by that? There's northern Greece. And then there's a, it funnels into an isthmus. Isthmus is a little strip of land. Corinth was on this isthmus, which was about a four-mile strip of land, a thin strip of land, which connected or acted as a land bridge to a southern part of Greece. So if this isthmus didn't exist, it'd, the southern part of Greece would be like an island. So this little isthmus was used by many people to travel up and down, and they even had ships, kind of like the Panama Canal today, before they had a canal there, Put on rollers and ships are rolled across those four mile uh, uh, piece of land so that the ships could get to the other side of the ocean and or other side of the coast. This is a very strategic location. It's similar to Southern California, like I said, because LA serves as the gateway from the Pacific Rim into the United States. Every, everything from the Far East could come through Los Angeles and spread out that way. And so similar to L.A. in that way, LAX is a hub. Many airlines will use LAX to fly out as a hub to get to different parts of the country and also different parts of the world and especially towards Asia. Since it was, Corinth was a major travel and trade route, it was wealthy, a lot of money, all right? Just like Los Angeles has a lot of money, it was an expensive place to live. But with wealth, also there was poor people. All right, there was a divide socioeconomically, and they had cultural diversity. Since it was just a just a thriving metropolis, you have all kinds of people living there. You had Jews, you had Gentiles, all kinds of folks. Just like Southern California has a very diverse ethnic uh, makeup. It was the educational center of the area as well. There's so many universities. 
I mean, Southern California is known as one of the great educational spots in, in the country, from, from the junior college system to even places like Caltech. We have it all and everything in between. People from around the world and the country will come to Southern California to get educated, similar to Corinth. Many universities, many schools of philosophy, this, this was a major place. And it was even a cultural center. I mean, it had its own Isthmian Games, which, is, which rivaled the Olympics, very similar in, in pro, uh, uh, prominence uh, to that time for the Olympic Games. But one of the defining things about Corinth was that it was also a religious center. Many temples, many shrines to the Greek gods, and the temple that really was emblematic of Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite, for those of us who don't know, is the goddess, the demonic goddess of love. And this temple of Aphrodite was famous for temple prostitutes. This temple had around a thousand priestesses who served their rituals during the day. And then at night, they'll come down the hill and serve the sailors that would come in. Prostitution was a big deal. And Corinth was characterized by a word, to Corinthianize. To Corinthianize. What does that mean? That means to live a debauched, immoral life. It's kind of like today, and you've seen sayings like in Vegas, you know, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Corinth was like that. To Corinthianize was to live a debauched, immoral, sexual life. Okay, so this is the word. This is how they've been characterized to be in Corinth. So, but there was a church there. There was a church in the very dark part of the world. There was an actual church that Paul planted, that God had called many to be part of that church. So here's the report that he, Paul got, that the Corinthian church was acting worldly. Worldliness has infected the church and the church is no longer acting as the church, but acting more like the world. It's just blending, it in, blending in with the world. They're in the world, but also of the world. You know, as, as Christians, we're in the world, but we're not called to be of the world. And so they're acting like the world. And this, these are the issues that came up. There's disunity that Paul's going to address. There's tribalism. People were starting to have these cult followings and just uh, uh, personality cults that were developing in Corinth. There was spiritual snobbery. Some, some Christians in the church were feeling superior to others and they were misusing their spiritual gifts. There was even drunkenness and drug issues going on in the church. And some people were even coming to the Lord's table taking communion drunk. Can you imagine that? There was also ethnic tensions and cultural tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles within the church. There was even issues of marriage and divorce that Paul had to address. There was even issues of sexual deviancy. Paul is very explicit on some of these things. Fornications, issues of homosexuality, issues of even incest. There were false teachers that were creeping into the church, trying to, trying to slander Paul and trying to take over. I mean, does that not sound like today? Does that not sound like what you would turn on the television today and hear what's going on? So all the issues of the day today in 2020 were very much alive 2,000 years ago. These, these things are not new to our Lord, and he knew these things would happen. And 
1 Corinthians is going to be a letter that's going to really address a lot of these issues. So in response to this horrible report, how does Paul respond? Does he just go right down the list? You're being disunit, you're being disunit, you're not being unified, be unified. Does he say, hey, you, you're in sexual sin, stop that. Does he go into all these issues? No, 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 no. He doesn't go there yet. As we read in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, Paul addresses who they are before any of these problems are talked about. Paul takes the first nine verses to tell us who we are in Christ, just like Pastor Ron did. All these things like Pastor Ron talked about from medals, accomplishments, to degrees, accomplishments, to what people say about us, may describe us, but they'll never define us. We're Paul addresses their identity. And here's a... Here's a, a quote that I'd like to read to you by a man named Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp is an author, teacher, theologian. He, he's written many wonderful books like Shepherding a Child's Heart, Instruments in a Redeemer's Hand. But this is what he says in an interview talking about what the normal human struggle is. All right, The normal human struggle says, I look for identity horizontally. I look for identity horizontally. When I was hardwired by God to get it vertically, all right? So I look for something in creation to define who I am. Just like as Pastor Ron talked about, we may look at things in a created order, what are human relationships, to even accomplishments such as medals or Super Bowl rings or degrees, uh, where we live, those sort of things may describe us, but they'll never define us. Even things like disease and sin, cancer may describe Jordan's history in his life, but they'll never define him, right? So in the Corinthians, were prey to this problem. They're looking to the created things to define who they were. And in essence, they allowed the world to define who they were. Paul was saying, remember who you are in Christ. Remember your identity is intertwined with Christ, not Corinth, not the philosophy of the world, not the, the, the uh, religions of the world, not the status of man, not in pleasures of the world sexually or through drugs and alcohol. Not these things. He's saying, look, remember who you are in Christ. So this Paul's pattern is to definitely define what the issue is, but ultimately resolve it in the message of the gospel. Okay, so let's get to point number one. That was a lengthy introduction, but I hope that paints a really good picture of what Paul is dealing with in the church in, at the church in Corinth. And he was reminding them who they are in light of the gospel. But point number one, and if you're a note taker, hopefully you're using that note uh, taking app uh, through our Evergreen app, and it's amazing. You could fill it in, you could type it in, you could even email it to yourself. I mean, I, at my home, I got tons of written notes from sermons, and I don't know where everything is, though. Somewhere, hopefully, it's mostly in my mind, in my heart. But this is a way to kind of text it in electronically through the app, and then you could email it to yourself. You keep a long file, and at the end of the year, 
you meet, you'll be able to teach Corinthians yourself, right? And so keep a good uh, di- uh, log of things going on. And I'm grateful for Garrett and Noah and others who've helped develop this app to kind of help our church family. But point number one, let's get to it. In Christ, I am a saint, which speaks about our identity. That word that Pastor Ron talked about. Key word, identity, right? So let's look at the Bible and the, to see what the Bible says about who we are. In Christ, I am a saint, right? Let me read this. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. God calls us saints. And this question is, what is a saint, right? We don't use that term all the time. As I was researching this this week, someone came to mind, and so I thought this would serve as a good illustration, Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa is a, was a Catholic nun, and this is an amazing woman. This is an absolutely amazing servant. Mother Teresa is, has been a recognized and very well-known de- well humanitarian, helping the poorest of the poor in India and Calcutta. I mean, she was a staunch opponent to abortion and held the sanctity of life at a high, in a high regard. She even was recognized with the Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize. So this woman was known as an incredible person. And then September 4th, 2016, so over four years ago, to the day almost, she, the Catholic Church canonized her as a saint. So instead of being Mother Teresa, she's Saint Teresa now. Okay, so how does one become a saint according to the Roman Catholic Church? Well, I did some research, and this is what they said. First thing is these people have to be gone or have died for at least five years. And that gives time for people to, to continue to remember her, her or him. And if they're still remembered in a way, they will start uh, considering this person to perhaps be canonized as a saint. Number two, did this person live a heroic virtue? So in the case of uh, Mother Teresa, she was an amazing servant, sacrificial servant, serving the least of these, right? The poorest amongst the poor in India. Number three, Upon their intercession, praying for someone, can they verify a miracle took place through their prayers? So evidently, Mother Teresa was praying and some kind of a tumor was healed. That, I believe that's the miracle that was identified for her. And then fourthly, the Pope needs to verify a second miracle that was done through uh, this person. So in the case of Mother Teresa, she was canonized as saint. In 2016, all these, she, she checked, check, 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 check. She met all these requirements, and then they canonized her saint. Now, there's many benefits to being a saint. One, the Catholic view teaches that saints are, uh, are acknowledged as having gone to heaven immediately. Okay, that's one. Two, they name things after saints. I mean, they name them after schools and universities, hospitals, Right, St. Thomas uh, Church or St. Jude's Hospital. You know, they name things after these saints. And also the Roman Catholics believe that you could pray to these saints. So right now, Roman Catholics may be praying to, uh, to uh, Mother T- uh, Teresa or St. Teresa to intercede for, for them. 
Obviously, these, these are aberrant practices. The Bible does not teach any of these things. Okay, so that's kind of the Catholic view. But how does one become a saint according to scriptures? This is the one, as Pastor Ron says, as we're staring at the Bible, the Bible tells us who we are. How does one actually become a saint according to the scriptures? Let's take a look again. Verse 2, to those who have been sanctified, I mean set apart, made holy. How? In Christ Jesus. Saints by calling. So it's not necessarily what we do. It's not my good works that achieve sainthood. It's what has been done to us. Something has been done to you and me who are in Christ to become saints. And it's what God is. This word sanctified, hagiazo, means to be set apart, made holy. Something was done to us to make us set apart from the world, set apart from Corinth, set apart from San Gabriel Valley, right? And saints, hagias, which means holy ones. God sees us as holy ones, those of us who are in Christ. This whole concept of in Christ is big in Paul's theology. Paul, the apostle, was definitely a Jesus guy, okay? In, in his 13 epistles, 13 letters of the New Testament, in essence, 13 books of the, Old Te- uh, of the New Testament, He uses this concept of in Christ Jesus, in Christ, in Jesus Christ, in the Lord, in the beloved, in him, right? He uses that concept of our connection to Christ 164 times. You might want to write that down in your notes. 164 times. That shows you how important being in Christ was to Paul. That shows you that he's trying to get across to us that being in Christ is our identity. Even in this, these nine short verses, you know, it says we're sanctified in Christ Jesus. We're, we're, we've been given grace in Christ Jesus. We've been enriched in him. So, the, so Paul, Jesus is all over this first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. Jesus is the linchpin to our identity. It's all about Christ. And our old identity was sinner. That's who we were. But our new identity is I'm a saint. Can you say that at home? I'm a saint. I'm a saint. This is who you are. Keep telling yourself this is who you are. And obviously it's not because of what you've done or I've done. I mean, this was a tough week for me. I mean, I'm not kidding you. It's tested me and challenged me amongst all the other issues and all the other uh, wonderful challenges that are before me as a pastor at Evergreen Shivi. This personal issue has challenged me. I didn't feel like a saint many times this week. I mean, you could ask my wife and my children, and my patience was thin. It was thin. And if I went with my feelings, then I'd be like, man, I don't feel like a saint. But you know what? It was great meditating on God's word as Pastor Ron talked about, staring at the scriptures as the scriptures was telling me who I am. It's, it's more than a feeling. It's absolutely more than a feeling. And during this time with pandemic and isolation, sin is rampant. And it may not be visible sin, but secret sins are rampant. Issues of pornography, issues of thought life, relational things going on. Sin is absolutely rampant. Perhaps, brothers and sisters, you don't feel like a saint right now. 
You may be sitting there right now at home listening to this and just, man, I'm not worthy. I'm going to take communion and I don't feel like a very genuine Christian. Well, know this. The Bible says you are a saint, not because of you, because of Christ Jesus. It's more than a feeling. It's more than a feeling. We do not want to go off for our feelings. We want to go off truth. As Pastor Ron talks, we want to stare at the scriptures to know who we are. So our identity, we are saints. I am a saint. Now, saints have benefits, and this is going to go to our next point, point number two. And uh, point number two, I, in Christ, I am a saint, which speaks about our status. What are, what are you talking about? Our old identity as sinners meant that we had wrath. You know, we, we were waiting the wrath of God. So right now, friend, if you're sitting here not knowing if you're a Christian, God's wrath is upon you. And I'm going to read something from us, for us in Romans chapter 5. Let's start off with verse 6 through 10. And just put yourself in this place if you're not a Christian. This is what God's, how God sees sinners. Verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. This is how great God's love is. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that we're, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified, declared innocent by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. If you have not put your faith in the blood of Christ, the wrath of God is pointed towards you someday. And you're going to experience God's wrath upon death or upon his return. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, God calls non-believers enemies, we were reconciled to God. We were made to be at peace with God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, made to be friends with God, we shall be saved by his life. Our old identity as sinners meant that we had the wrath of God pointed towards us. That's what that means. It's very serious. It's real. It's very sobering. But here's the good news. Let's look at verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. This is a very common greeting by Paul, but it's more than a greeting. There's some deep theology here in verse 3. Grace to you and peace. He uses a form of this greeting in all his letters. Grace to you and peace. Grace in the original language is kairos. Kairos. And what grace means is having unmerited favor, undeserved blessing. We don't deserve any of this. Not by man's efforts, but God's lavish love upon his people. And when you have the grace of God, you know what it leads to? It leads to having peace with God. So grace to you and peace. Grace of God leads to being at peace with God. No longer, no longer enemies, no longer awaiting God's wrath. Christians are at peace with God. And keep in mind, brothers and sisters, Paul was a Jewish man. And in the Jewish world, they had this concept called shalom. 
Shalom meaning peace. Shalom meaning it is all good. Shalom meaning I am at harmony with everything going on. Even if the world around me in Corinth or in the San Gabriel Valley is getting difficult, my, the, my economics is stressing me out, my finances are stressing me out, my job situation is stressing me out, certain relationships are stressing me out, I'm not at peace with those things. Health reports with my children is, is taxing me. I mean, these are real issues. But what Paul's writing and saying, when we're at peace with God vertically, in light of eternity, we have nothing to worry about. Peace, shalom. Grace to you and shalom. Grace to you and peace. And this was significant because Paul, in 1 Timothy 1.13, is called a persecutor, a, a violent aggressor. Paul used to terrorize the church. He used to drag Christians to their, and bring them to trial, to their death. He used to separate mothers and fathers and, and parents from children and throw them in prison. Many Christians were killed, including Stephen, at the hands of people like Paul. Paul was a terrorist. Think of the, a fundamental Muslim who would kill people, who would kill the infidel when they don't believe in their belief system. Paul was like that. Acts 9 chronicles his conversion experience. But Paul is basically saying, I used to be at wrath with God, but grace was poured out on a terrorist like me, and now I'm at peace with God. Just like the Corinthian church, brothers and sisters, We've been given grace. Paul is writing to Christians who've been graced by God to be at peace with God. Our peace is anchored, not in our old identity as sinners, but it's anchored in our new identity in Christ. We're saints, therefore we're at peace with God. Let's go to our third point here. Third, another benefit of being a saint God lavishes us with riches. I mean, since we're friends with God, we're children of God, just like any good father would lavish good things on his children, God does the same thing. Point number three, in Christ, I am a saint, which speaks about our riches, fill in the blank, riches. Our old identity as sinners left us poor, spiritually poor. You might have had all the wealth material wealth in the world, but we're, you're spiritually poor as sinners, as non-believers. But now, as saints in Christ, we're filthy rich. Maybe not materially, but spiritually, we have everything you would ever need and want on this side of eternity. We are spiritually rich. I mean, let me read verses, verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. What is this grace? What is this kairos? What is this unmerited favor? What is this undeserved blessing? That in everything you are enriched in him. In Christ, we've been made filthy rich, the Bible says. We have everything that we need. Let's, let's look at some of these example, examples in all speech and all knowledge. I take this in the broadest sense that every single Christian, every single saint is able to speak forth the saving message of the gospel. 
we have this treasure to share to non-believers and to other believers to remind them of who they are in Christ. We have the power, the message of the gospel to share with others. We're filthy rich. Information gets you paid these days. You can get jobs by having information and expertise. These things are important, but forget all that. We have the saving message of the gospel, the sanctifying message of the gospel. We could speak. All Christians have the ability to speak forth the message of the gospel. Verse 6, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, meaning we believe the gospel message, the Corinthians believe the gospel message, the gospel message was established in every Christian in Corinth and at Evergreen SUV. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. We all we got, we all we need in the local church in Corinth or at Evergreen SGV, God has graced us with various gifts. Some people are meant to preach and teach. Some people are meant to lead us in praise and, and song. Some people are meant to serve. Some people are meant to be an encourager. Some people are meant to be counselors as we're growing in our area, biblical counseling. This is how life in the church works when everyone is able to put in to one another all the various gifts. Remember what we talked about a few weeks ago. When we're able to experience more of the body of Christ, we're able to see a fuller picture of Christ. Because not any of us has all the gifts. Some of us may have a type of gift and even different shades of this type of gift. When we all bring it together, you're able to see Christ more fully. Think about it like this. Here's the illustration. We have four children. Many of us have children. When We just celebrate one of our children's birthday yesterday. And I remember when he was a baby. He was born with a head, two arms, two feet, two legs, two feet, ten toes, ten fingers. And he had it all. But as a baby... He needed to develop his ability to walk, to talk, to think, to grab hold of things, to jump, and, and, and to be able to, uh, to think clearly, clearly through things. So we've been, if, as a Christian, you know, if you're a baby Christian, you've been given certain gifts. And it's your responsibility to develop these gifts so that you could bless the church family. So verse 5 says that in everything you're enriched in him. Not just, this is not just talking about an individual like just Pastor Ron. This is talking about the whole church. This is not just talking about Pastor Terry. This is talking about the whole church. Remember, this is a letter written to the entire church. So meaning the whole church has everything that we need. Ephesians 1.13 says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. That means we have everything that we need. We're not lacking in anything. And this word gift, in the Greek, the original language, charisma, related to the word grace, grace gift. And this grace gift is meant to bless the entire church. So in, in the case of the Corinthians, Paul was getting ready to address some issues of spiritual snobbery down the road in chapter uh, 12. So he's not there yet, okay, but he's, getting, he's setting the stage to address some of these things. There's no reason why any of us should feel arrogant about the spiritual gifts that we have. It's all a grace. We've been given these things. None of us even earned these things. It's meant to grow the body of Christ. Let's go to our, our fourth and final point. 
And in the light of eternity, one of the benefits, massive benefit, what else matters is this. Point number four, in Christ I am a saint, which speaks about our destiny. Our destiny. This is who we are, and we have nothing to worry about. Our old identity as sinners left us, in, left us insecure. As sinners, we're relying on, uh, on sand. We're, we had our identity and our security built on sand. I was relying on certain relationships. I was relying on my achievements. I was relying on what others said about me. I was relying on my health and my fitness. All these things could change in a moment. We know this. Let's read verse 7 here, second part here. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end, to the end, that's a key word, to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 7, Paul talks about God, we wait for that time when the full revelation of Christ is known. What does that mean? That means full knowledge. Bible says we know only in part right now who Jesus is. And even the written word is amazing. But someday we'll have a full picture of who Christ is. And we'll be like, whoa, you're greater than I even imagined. I, could, I, I thought I knew you through the scriptures and had an accurate view. But even, you're even better than... You even, I could even imagine through the scriptures, full revelation of our Lord in that day. That, that means that the day when Christ returns, we'll see him for who he is. And in that day, our Lord will confirm, establish us as blameless, the Bible says. Verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, when Christ returns, we'll be blameless. We'll be blameless because we're saints. Not because of our own doing, because of grace. Grace. In Christ, we've been made saints, holy ones. God the Father does not see us anymore. He knows everything. He, he doesn't have some kind of amnesia like where he doesn't, or blindness where he doesn't see our day-to-day -day sins. He sees those things. But positionally, he sees his son covering us now. Jesus Christ's righteousness are all over us. He, first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. He made him, the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, who was perfect, to be sin. He treated him like a sinner on the cross so that he could treat you and I as having Jesus' righteousness. This is how it works. Jesus took on the sacrifice. Jesus took on the punishment. He took our worst, and Jesus gives us his best. And the Father sees the best of his Son on us. That's why we're saints. And it says that they, these Corinthians will be seen as blameless. That means innocent, above reproach, unaccusable. Remember Satan? He's also known as the what? The accuser. Satan means the accuser. Satan, the accuser, is going to try to accuse you and me. So-and-so did this and that. So-and-so is thinking this. In, in Christ, the Lord doesn't say, account paid for because of Jesus. Away, accuser. Get away here. You don't have a word in this hearing. 
I like what Gordon Fee said. I, I took this quote from me. Gordon Fee is a theologian, and he wrote this in his commentary. What is remarkable is that Paul should express such confidence about a community, the Corinthian church, whose behavior is anything but blameless. And on several occasions, he must exhort with the strongest kind of warning. The Corinthian church was not known for holiness. The Corinthian church was known for debauchery to Corinthianize. And perhaps that may characterize some of us. But it's more than a feeling. Our Lord says, in Christ, you and I are saints. In Christ. To the end, he will confirm that you and I are blameless in Christ. A couple years ago, or about 10 years ago, I was up in Seattle, and my friend invited me to an apologetics conference and a man, a wonderful teacher, speaker, Dr. Ron Carlson, who's now with the Lord, was speaking on Roman Catholicism. And um, he, gave, he gave a testimony of how he was able to visit Mother Teresa on her deathbed. Mother Teresa died on September 5th, all right, 1997. And so Dr. Carlson was able to go to Calcutta and spend some time with Mother Teresa. And he, he spoke about her in a very honoring way, in a very respectful way. But he quoted a quote by Mother Teresa that really stuck with me for many years, for these 10 years or so. Upon his visit, Dr. Carlson said that Mother Teresa told him, I hope I have done enough good to get to heaven. Let me read that again. I hope I have done enough good to get to heaven. Well, if that is an accurate quote to describe what Mother Teresa believed, that good works gets one into heaven, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Because the bad news is this. None of us are good enough. None of us are faithful enough to get to heaven. That's the truth. That's the bad news. But the good news says this in verse 9. God is faithful. Let me read that again. God is faithful. It's like we sung in the songs. God is faithful. Through whom you were called into fellowship, into friendship, into intimate relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. We may not be faithful, but God is faithful. God is faithful. We are not. God is faithful, and he's allowed us to be friends with his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are saints. My encouragement to you as we get ready to take communion is this. Are you in Christ right now? Do you know that, in fact, you are in Christ do you know that you will you have a saving relationship with Christ? Do you know that being in Christ is not the same as being in church? Do you know that being in Christ is not the same as being part of a Christian family or, or the same as doing good works, good deeds? Being in Christ means that you are a friend of Christ because you have believed the message of the gospel. The gospel says this, that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, people like you and me. 
The gospel says this, the bad news of the gospel is this, that you and I are sinners and none of us are good enough and we're gonna experience God's wrath someday. That's the truth. And there's nothing we could do about it. We cannot do any good works to earn or merit God's forgiveness. But the gospel, the good news says this, Jesus took on God's wrath, the Father's wrath, so that you and I can be treated as sons and daughters, forgiven. Do you remember a decisive moment where you said, you know what, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, as my Lord, as my King, as my God. I repent and follow him as my King. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the Lord says in Matthew. Do you follow him as Lord? If you do, you're a saint and you're able to take communion and celebrate with one another. Communion is the most unifying time in the life of the church, especially here, particularly Evergreen SGV. Communion symbolizes that we all believe in the same God, the same saving message of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, it says, our, seven times, our brother, our father, our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, we believe in the same Lord. We follow the same Lord. So right now, I'm going to pray. And the main concern for me as a pastor is that, is that we take communion in a worthy manner as saints. So if there's any sin that we need to confess, let's do that during, while Pastor Terry and Sister June lead us in praise. Let's do that. Let's repent of anything that comes to mind so that when we take communion after, we could take communion in a worthy manner. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Thank you that we're able to take communion right now. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much. Father, I pray your spirit will prick in our hearts anything that we need to repent of right now. I pray, Lord, that we would bring these things, that we would confess these things to you so that we could take communion in a worthy manner, Lord, during this song time. Father, if there's anyone listening today who's not a Christian, I pray they will repent for the first time and say, Lord, I want to follow you as Lord. Oh, I trust in the work that you did for me on the cross and in the grave. You are my Lord. And Lord, for the first time I pray this person will be able to take communion in the brotherhood and sisterhood of Christ. So thank you, Father. Please prepare us to take communion in a holy, holy manner. In Jesus' name, amen.